Welcome to Coffee House. How did we get here? We used to be bands of cave dwellers hunting mastodons and loincloths, and now we have Starbucks. The ancient Greeks gave us much more than we realize. The Oresteia by Ashless is number 72 in the 100 Greatest Works of All Time list, and it is both standard and non-standard Greek tragedy. So as always, we will go through the contents, we will do some quotes, because it's literature, so you can get an idea for the writing style, and then we'll do an analysis at the end. We don't usually do a big picture for literature, but uh, that might change in the future, but we'll see. And if you're interested, uh, there should be a link for a book that I wrote. It's a lot of fun. It's a little fun thing to take your brain away from <laughs> from what's going on in the world. If you want to have a look at that, it is in no ways... No, it's a little serious. It's got some serious comparative literature analysis, but otherwise just joking about uh, people who took it upon themselves to write their first chapters for their unpublished works. And that's Once Upon a Vampire. So check that out if you want to. But otherwise, these are the contents of the Orestia. So it comes in three parts. It's a trilogy like John Wick. It's one of, if not the only surviving trilogy from Greek antiquity. Wait, how many of the Oedipus books were there? Anyway, it's one of the few that survived. And there might have been a fourth, but there it didn't survive antiquity. So we do not have that. And I think for the better, this thing seems to be well contained. So it comes in three parts. The Agamemnon is the first part. The Libation Bearers is the second part. And the Eumenides is the third part. It chronicles the House of Atreus. So we start in Agamemnon. And throughout these three plays, the chorus actually plays an important role. It has a personality, and not just to objectively state what's going on, like some kind of narrator, but it gets involved. It has an interest and has opinions about what's going on, and is an actual character. So, uh, going on from here... King Agamemnon is returning from war against Troy with his concubine Cassandra. His wife, Clytemnestra, awaits. So he's been long at war. And during the battle, Agamemnon and his troops were at great risk. They were struggling. And he needed a sacrifice to the gods to gain their favor. He needed something valuable to be able to sacrifice to the god Artemis. And he ended up sacrificing the daughter that he shared with Clytemnestra, Iphigenia. So obviously, Clytemnestra was uh, was distraught for all the years that he was off at war after this had occurred, and she plotted over this time with her lover, Gisthus, to kill the king. So when Agamemnon returned after the war, Clytemnestra one-ups Lady Macbeth and does the deed with an axe herself while the king is in his bath. So after the deed is done and vengeance is wreaked, leaving Clytemnestra and her lover Aegisthus, who is actually the cousin, I believe, of Agamemnon, who had some kind of a claim to the throne, they take rule of the kingdom, but the chorus warns of things to come. So then we move on to the second part. The second part is libation bearers. And Agamemnon is actually the longest one. There are a whole bunch of ins and outs that we didn't go through, obviously. But the libation bearers is the second one. So Clytemnestra and her lover Aegisthus now rule the kingdom, and the bearers that are the ones in the title are the chorus. So after a dream that Clytemnestra has of giving birth to a snake, who nurses roughly, we'll say, it bites her while nursing, she's concerned about what could happen. She commands her daughter Electra and the libation bearers to pour libations on the grave of Agamemnon as an offering to the gods to try to appease them. And in the meantime, she had sent off her son, so it was Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's son, Orestes, 
he was sent off because she was concerned that his now stepfather, Aegisthus, would have him killed because he has a legitimate claim to the throne. So he's sent off, uh, but she still has Electra there, who she's treating very poorly. And she sends Electra with the libation bearers to Agamemnon's grave to pour these libations over to try to appease the gods. At that moment, it happens to be the time that Orestes has returned from afar and had gone to his father's grave and meets Electra there. And when the siblings meet and they share what was going on, what had happened, and Electra discusses the uh, dream that Clytemnestra had, and Orestes thinks that he is representative of the snake in the dream. So the siblings devise a plot to achieve vengeance on their mother and their stepfather. So already you have this circle, the circle of vengeance that's occurring, that you had the the one injustice that is avenged by another injustice, and then we have this this next one that's being plotted. So Orestes and his friend Pilates actually are the ones who return. They go to the, the castle and they lie that Orestes had died. So they say that they have a message, that Orestes had died in the far-off land, and they were just trying to relay this message to the queen and the chorus at this point, they convince the, the nurse who's going to bring Aegisthus to say that Aegisthus should come alone. So when they meet, then Orestes kills the stepfather, kills Aegisthus, and takes his mother in his hands. And his mother warns him that if he does this, then he's going to be cursed. But uh, not just Orestes in believing that he, he wants this vengeance on his mother, but Apollo, the god Apollo, also calls him to his duty of getting this vengeance on his mother for what she did. And so he does it. He kills his mother after having killed his stepfather. And in that moment, the Aranese... I'm not sure how to pronounce that. <laughs> the Furies. Uh, the word actually means the Furies. The Furies appear to Orestes so he can see them and warn him that he is cursed now for what he did and that it was worse than what his mother did to his father. Now this uh, severely bothers him. He has uh, some psychological issues, uh, ramifications uh, from this event, as you might expect. So then we go into the third part, the Eumenides. So Orestes initially seeks refuge in a temple to Apollo. So remember, Apollo was the one, the god, who encouraged it and said it was his duty to get this revenge on his mother. And he's using this, he uses a sleeping spell to temporarily quell the Furies who are chasing him now. They're chasing him all around. So Orestes flees to Athens, and when he gets to Athens, that's where Athena intervenes, the goddess Athena. And she enlists a jury of 12 Athenians to decide whether his actions against his mother were justified. So Athena presides over the trial. Apollo defends Orestes. He's like the, his uh, defense attorney, while the Furies support Clytemnestra. So they're the prosecutors. And when the verdict's returned, it comes out 6-6. But Athena turns out to be the deciding vote, and she persuades the Furies to accept her determination that Orestes was justified and should be acquitted. So Orestes thanks Athena and returns home as the rightful king. Athena then renames the Aranes, the Furies, renames them to the Eumenides, the, which means the kindly ones. So that's pretty much the end of the story. So, uh, awesome. Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> such an awesome story. I uh, can barely contain how much I <laughs> love how cool this story is. So anyway, we'll do some quotes and then we'll get into the analysis. That was a little uh, plug-in of analysis that I ought to have waited for, but still. Okay, the quotes. Just a couple so you can get an idea. Quote, they came back to widows, to fatherless children, to screams, to sobbing. The men came back as little clay jars full of sharp cinders, end quote. And then another one, alas, poor men, their destiny. When all goes well, a shadow will overthrow it. If it be unkind, one stroke of a wet sponge wipes all the picture out. And that is far the most unhappy thing of all. And that was said by Cassandra. So into the analysis. 
So how I read this book, I actually, I read the physical book. It's not very long. I read the physical book first, but it's written in, you know, pretty dense poetry. And sometimes it's just difficult to, if it's not Shakespeare, it's not Milton. Sometimes it's it's difficult to read lengthy stories that are built in poetry. You know, I would find myself reading multiple pages in a row and then I couldn't, in my brain understand what actually happened in it. <laughs> I wasn't sure what the action actually was that was going on. So then I went and listened to the audiobook as well to try to make sure that I was getting all the content that was coming out of it. And the audiobook was ridiculous. <laughs> I listened to something called, it was a LibriVox recording, and anybody who's listened to these, these are like public domain audiobooks, and it's just people who volunteer to do these readings of these books, which is wonderful, uh, no disparagement to that, just in general, I love that people are so into it, they're willing to give, you know, hours of their time to do this, but it was ridiculous, like there was one that just sounded like they were in witness protection, you know, they, they had to protect their identity, so I couldn't understand most of what was said by this particular character, there was one girl who sounded like a, a cheerleader, She's like, oh, here we go, Greek tragedy, this is great. You know, <laughs> give me an H. It was so weird listening to that. Then there's another one where you can tell that it's just, they're supposed to be reacting to each other, you know, because it's it's a conversation. But they did their parts individually and separately, so it just, none of it matches up or makes any sense. And then there's one where it was two people that were layered on top of each other. So they're supposed to be saying the things at the same time, but they were off, you know, <laughs> they were significantly off. It wasn't like it was just echoed. They were very off in the way <laughs> that one would read it versus the other, which is just annoying. So it was just hilarious um, how much the, how odd the audiobook was. I should have sprung for a non-public domain one, but I was wondering exactly how this was going to go. So anyway, it was an incredible story with massive thematic work going on here. All the characters are internally and powerfully motivated. This is something that you see in ancient stories about these sorts of things. Uh, they definitely have motivations and they're distinct characters and they are they have complex moralities. <laughs> when you think about stories in the Bible or other ancient texts, you know, they have very important meaning apart from, you know, what's going on and who the characters are and, and what's what they decide to do or not do. But they also have complexity, moral complexity, you know, they do things that are questionable and um, and good and important, and the decisions that they make have consequences, and usually very severe consequences. So especially in this, that was the case. But overall, it's a fable about the blood circle of revenge and getting out of that. It's the advent of the dispassionate legal system. That's the whole point of the story, is <laughs> that you have Athena who's inventing the legal system so we can get out of the circle of vengeance upon vengeance upon vengeance. And, you know, vengeance being rained on the, the sons and the sons of the sons, etc. So it's so interesting. And actually, Aegisthus, uh, I think he was the cousin of Agamemnon. And he had a claim to the throne. But I think his father was also killed by Agamemnon. So it, it started there, too. But what a start uh, otherwise to the, the beginning of the vengeance cycle is uh, sacrificing one's daughter <laughs> to win a war. There were claims, and I saw some of this, the discussions about how women were treated in this and how they're kind of considered uh, terrible people in general. You know, Clytemnestra isn't great, and all the women are kind of dishonest and, and do terrible things and lose in the end. But ultimately, it was Athena, the goddess Athena, who's the one who ushered in the entire legal system that quells the Furies. Obviously, she could just be representative of Athens, and all the logic's supposed to be coming out of Athens and the, the rational people there. But still, she is the one who quells the Furies, who says that, no, you don't get to be the Furies anymore. You have to be the humanities, the kindly ones, uh, who's thinking about justice as opposed to vengeance. Having said that, I mean, obviously, <laughs> you're going to expect some pretty backwards understandings of the way women should be treated or represented in something that was written in 500 B.C., 
and hopefully as of today. But that's that's one of the things because, you know, Clytemnestra, the thing that you think about when women are represented in fiction is that they're usually represented passively. That's kind of the big representation. They're always passive. They don't accomplish much of anything. Or they're brooding vipers and they just do horrible things and that's it. But Clytemnestra makes a lot of sense, <laughs> and she's definitely not passive. She takes it upon herself to accomplish something and does something that's morally questionable but makes some kind of moral sense. You know, she is uh, defending her children. She's gravely concerned about the safety of her son thereafter. I think she's a really interesting character. And to have that dimension, that's much more important than just whatever other women happen to be treated, how they happen to be treated as characters, you know, later in the story. I just think she is a really interesting character in that she has this thing that she's up against. You know, the king decides that this is the rational thing to do, is to sacrifice their daughter. And so she takes that vengeance upon him, and but still wants to protect her son, and then has to suffer with the idea of her son killing her, which I just actually, I haven't played a video game in ages. It's been like years since I've actually really sat down with a video game. And I just played God of War and there were a lot of these kinds of themes that came up in it. You know, it's based on Norse mythology. And there was something very similar, oddly enough, that came up at the end of that. But anyway, so the fact that she has to deal with her son being the one to do this as one of the cogs in this vengeance circle. But overall, I, I mean, I just love this. I really think though, because there was something inaccessible because the story, the background story is so awesome. It's interesting. It's well-structured. It has incredible thematics, these incredible ideas about the advent of the legal system, all those things. But it's really becomes a little inaccessible because of the the poetry, the way that the poetry is written sometimes. It, it just, it feels like it takes too long to get the action out of it. So I would love to see the movie version. <laughs> you know, we could have like a 10 Things I Hate About You kind of update of the Oresteia by Ashless. They could be like in high school and they have to, I don't know, sacrifice their daughter to save a basketball game or something. I don't know. But I would love to see a movie version of this story with some simplified language. Not to disparage this work as it is. I'm sure I'm going to come back to it a million times and I'll have an easier time of digesting the poetry in it and, and figure out what's going on. But still, I'd love to see the movie version. <laughs> a nice update. But overall, I mean, obviously, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed this. This was one of those ones that was really kind of exciting to see where it was going and see everything, all the dimension to it when it came to the thematics. So that was that was great to see. But, so, that's that one. I know we, we have more parts of the big, the behemoth that we're working on coming up. I think I'm going to do some more fiction, because it was fun getting through that one, and then I'm going to do the next one. The next one on the list is something that I hadn't heard of, I think. Yeah, Journey to the End of Night is the next fiction one that's coming up. That's number 71. And I don't know anything about this. It was written in 1932, but I don't know any of the particulars about this book. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope it's not too especially long, because we're going to be on a run after that with some amazing stuff. But otherwise, nonfiction-wise, we might have a couple of um, financial books that are coming in, something about the banking and that kind of thing. I've, I've read like six of those recently, just as separate books, <laughs> and maybe a movable feast if I haven't done that already. But otherwise, uh, there are just there are so many worth reading. Uh, Liars Poker is one that I came upon when I was uh, reading another book about banking, and I know it was a big deal when it initially came out, but I never read it, had hadn't heard of it, so I just got it and might be reading that one too. So 
or throw in some Friedrich Nietzsche. I, I'm just reading those constantly, so uh, maybe we'll throw in one of those. I, I'm not sure. I know this should be better organized, and we're going to try to get, get on that track as soon as we can. But the brain is just sparking all over the place. I can't even begin to describe. So overall, anyway, I hope you enjoyed that book, and I hope you will continue loving to learn about affective neuroscience with the other book. Does this work for anybody else? Because this is just how my brain works, is that I'm constantly thinking about every discipline there is and can't wait to tie them all together. I don't know if anybody else thinks in that way, but I hope all is well, and I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. (laughs) 